research agenda, policy messages, policy questions. And uh, I'm uh, really, really glad to have in the panel such amazing speakers. And uh, I'm sure that there will be an interesting uh, discussion. Uh, Diane Coyle will give the main presentation of the day in a study that she wrote. Uh, the study was uh, written uh, for uh, the Jean-Jacques Lafond uh, Digital Chair of Toulouse School of Economics. And we have Zach Kremer here who will uh, make the introduction. And then after uh, Diane's uh, to presentation, we'll have a panel discussion on the associated uh, policy and academic questions that we'll, uh, uh, she will raise. And uh, in this panel discussion, uh, we have uh, Bruno Basalisco from Copenhagen Economics. Welcome. We have uh, Werner Steng from uh, uh, the e-commerce and online platforms uh, unit, the head of unit from European Commission, DigiConnect. Welcome. And we have uh, Nicola Petit uh, from professor at uh, the University of Liège, uh, expert of competition issues. Welcome, Nicola. Thank you. Um, so without further ado, I will give the floor to Jacques uh, in order to, for his introduction. Hello. I'm going to say uh, lots of thank you, but first, uh, thank you to all of you for uh, being there. Uh, the Jean-Jacques Lafont chair was created about a bit over a year ago. So, uh, and among our missions is to do uh, research on platforms. Now, as you may know, we've done a huge amount of work on a platform in Toulouse, and at the same time we claim a leadership position on this, but we still thought it would be a good idea to have a, an outside view of uh, uh, an outside view of uh, uh, you know, what has been done on platforms and what's uh, uh, left to be done, and uh, you know, we asked Diane whether she would be willing to do this, and she accepted, and we are very thankful for the great job uh, that she's done. Uh, most of you must have heard about Diane, but she's got an extraordinary combination of academic and uh, policy expertise. Uh, she has an undergraduate degree from uh, Oxford and a PhD from the second best university in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, I've got one from the other one, so it's... Uh, she's uh, worked for the UK Treasury. She's been the economics editor of Independent. Uh, she's the author of several books. She's been a vice chair of the BBC Trust. She's been a member of the UK Competition Commission, and so on and so on. We need to let her time to speak, so we can't uh, speak about, completely about her CV. And uh, she's managing uh, director of uh, Enlightenment Economics and a professor at the University of uh, Manchester. Uh, on top of that, she's a really fantastic person. So thank you very much, Ryan, for uh, doing this. Um, before I let her speak, there are a few other people I uh, wanted to thank. First, there are the people who've organized this, in particular, uh, uh, Georges, who's done all the legwork and uh, all the organizing work, and uh, uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you to, for Bruegel uh, for hosting this uh, event. Uh, the research we have done uh, for the chair is supported by a number of partners, but there are three of them which are especially important. One is the French uh, Ministry of Culture, and communication, uh, Accor Hotel, uh, and Samsung. And finally, uh, there are a few people from uh, Microsoft here, yeah, and Microsoft has generously supported the research on IT in Toulouse for uh, many years, 
and uh, they've contributed to make this event possible. Diane? Everybody, and I think um, the, the size of the audience here today is testament to how interesting and important people find this subject. A lot of the debate, the kind of things that you read about in the newspaper every day, concern uh, whether or not regulators should crack down in some way on some digital platform, Uber, Airbnb, and so on. Hardly a day goes by without that kind of story. And I think that's exactly the wrong frame to bring to this debate. The question really is, how can we have more of them? Here are businesses growing rapidly, creating jobs and uh, large amounts of surplus for consumers and suppliers. Um, we need more of them in Europe, so I think the question is not how can we regulate them and make life harder, but how do we grow them and make sure that uh, all citizens can benefit from them. So I'm going to, in the next 20, 25 minutes, try to canter through quite a, a, a wide landscape of issues that I think emerge from reading the literature that there has been so far. And that's a literature that's growing very rapidly, lots and lots of new papers published pretty much every day. Uh, every one of them starts by trying to give a one-sentence definition of a platform. And it's pretty hard. And I think it's hard because they're very hybrid organisations, as I've just set out on this slide. They have aspects of being traditional businesses. They're trying to coordinate a supply chain. And there are all the standard issues that we think about in that context of vertical integration and uh, uh, all the contractual issues in that kind of organisation. They act like intermediaries and connecting small suppliers to the market where the questions are about economies of scale and transactions costs and the aggregation of information. They um, act like networks, like the telephone network, where they are connecting end users to each other. The questions there are who's in the network, who's important, how does it grow? And I think also interesting is how do social relations sit on top of the economic relations in those networks and what's, what are those interactions? And then finally, they act like very conventional exchanges or marketplaces, en enabling individual suppliers and buyers to meet. And the interesting part of the economics there is about um, mechanism design, market design, and how you improve the matching between um, individual suppliers on each side of the market. So it's not surprising that's a very vibrant area of research, and there's a lot going on. But I think there are also some very important gaps in the research, and particularly with regard to policy. One of the questions is, why is this happening now? This is uh, something that's just a few years old, and there's a huge growth in platforms and a huge growth in research on, on platforms. And um, in my mind, it's because of three innovations and one change in the economic context. Um, the structure of economic exchange is one of the fundamental questions in economics, of course. And uh, when do uh, pure atomistic markets that we think about as the benchmark in economic theory work well? And um, when they don't, because of transactions, costs, or asymmetric information, what sorts of organizations can try to overcome those barriers and problems? So it's an old question. Um, part of the innovation answer is in the chart on the left-hand side here, uh, which is the growth in smartphone sales. We've had uh, the internet for quite a while now. We've had the web since the mid-90s. We've had broadband access since around 2000. The big change in my mind has been smartphones as well, which have enabled millions of people to be always online. So it's the combination of the smartphones, but also uh, 3G, 4G, uh, 5G, and so on. That's one of the innovations. 
An innovation, uh, intellectual innovation, is uh, that literature about uh, market design mechanisms and how you match up demand and supply, what kind of processes um, can make that uh, matching work better and therefore deliver more economic welfare. Uh, and alongside that, innovation in software algorithms that embody those market design, which is increasingly becoming plug and play. If you want to start a fintech company, you can increasingly buy the bits of kit software, software that you need from a company like Stripe and plug them together. Those are the innovations. The change in the context, I think, is the increasing variety in modern economies, uh, the greater heterogeneity of supply and demand, which in the limit we might see uh, being uh, 3D, um, 3D printing, extremely individualized products, but no question that there is just much more demand for variety and supply variety in the market. So that, I think, is why platforms have taken off just recently. And you can try to organize them. So here's one typology that I find useful. But if you could draw a table with fuzzy lines, I would have made them fuzzy. And you could think about other sorts of structures as well. But here I've divided them into business to business, business to consumer, and peer-to-peer. Uh, -peer. And again, some of these are very old. Financial exchanges have been around for centuries. Um, uh, those sort of physical marketplaces likewise. Um, there are some interesting questions about the timing of when these work. Older generations of business-to-business -business platforms were not so successful, but more recent ones have been. Um, some of these business-to-consumer ones now feel quite old time. eBay's feels like it's been around for quite a long time. Uh, the P2P ones are newer, and I think it's fair to say they're the most controversial of the digital platforms. And uh, for me, that's because they are the biggest challenge to the existing uh, forms and structures of the collective organization of, of production and consumption. So I'll say a bit more about, about the sharing economy examples later. Now, as we know from uh, the work in, at the Toulouse School of Economics, including, of course, uh, 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 by Jean Tirol, um, we understand well some of the uh, basic economic issues in platforms now, and that's that you've got two sides to the platform. They've got to be in the right kind of balance with each other. This uh, little diagram of it comes from his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. Um, and the great benefit of the platforms is that they capture indirect network effects. So the more buyers there are on one side, the better it is for the sellers, and the more sellers there are on that side, the better it is for all the buyers. And uh, in almost all cases, there's a great asymmetry in the way that um, buyers and sellers are treated by the platform, and particularly in the prices. One side will always subsidize the other. And they seem quite natural when you look at the examples here, uh, but it isn't always apparent for a, pl a new platform coming along. Um, a great example of that is mobile phones when um, they first became widespread. And the United States opted for receiving party pays rather than calling party pays, and they, their market grew much, much more slowly than the European market uh, for other reasons, but also partly because they got that judgment about the price asymmetry uh, wrong. So the asymmetry depends on these uh, things I've listed here, price sensitivity, but also how much does each side benefit from those indirect network effects. Um, and those are, are large, and they've got different elements to them. One is just the sheer number of people that you can find to trade with on the other side of the platform. One is the variety, that if you've got a particular niche interest or particular niche uh, uh, demand, you can find somebody who's going to supply it. 
And then the other is discovery as well. There might be things out there that you didn't know about, and it's much easier to discover those through a platform. And the example there might be something like Spotify, where you not only get better access to a really wide range of music you know about, but you learn about other types as well. So one side will always subsidise the other, um, but that's always worthwhile because of the scale of those indirect network effects. And that's a basic point that does tend to get lost in the policy debate, that there are very large economic welfare gains from digital platforms, and we need more of them. And of course we need to debate how to regulate them and share those benefits, but those gains are large. Now, economists are interested in the business model challenges that are specific to the platforms. And uh, one of them is, is the chicken and egg problem. You need both sides. You've got to get the buyers to attract the sellers and vice versa. So uh, often platforms will put a lot of effort into um, finding one side of the market to start with. And uh, they have to get to a tipping point or a critical mass before the indirect network effects kick in and become big enough that they start growing organically. And uh, there are different ways of doing that. So on the right-hand side here is an email that my husband got. He's the BBC's technology correspondent. He gets every gadget. He signs up for everything that's going, which drives me crazy. Uh, but he got this email. And um, I don't know if you can see it from that distance, but it's, it's um, trying to create the sense of, of scarcity and excitement about this new platform. He's got a, a, a time-limited special offer to give three of his friends a code to access uh, this particular platform. And uh, he sent it to me and I signed up and I've never used it again since I signed up. So they don't always work. But this idea that you've got to sign up um, enough on each side is one of the big challenges. And lots of platforms fail. There are uh, some very big successes, but the failures are many. They have to not only get critical mass, they've got to get the pricing structure right, they've got to find the right balance between the sides and decide on access and usage fees. They've got to decide um, what kind of uh, contractual organisation they want, where there's a trade-off between um, coordinating and uh, brand marketing and the individual incentives that you give to suppliers. And the choice here might be not a platform, McKinsey's, and a platform, Thumbtack, for consultancy services. Or it might be between Uber, which insists that all its drivers are uh, atomized, uh, self-employed individuals, and uh, Deliveroo, which has a much more branded and organized model. So there are those kinds of choices too. Many of them fail, and we don't hear about those. We don't read about them in the papers. Um, there are very few homegrown ones that reach the kind of scale of the ones that the newspapers write about all the time. And to say the least, the regulatory context is very challenging. These are really rapidly growing newcomers, um, offering um, great service to consumers and suppliers in markets where the entry barriers are traditionally very high. And there's a, an argument that the um, big companies have succeeded most where there's most opportunity for regulatory arbitrage, uh, so they can offer a much better deal to consumers. But the catch is that you then get entangled into, in um, in uh, some intense regulatory debates. So there are all of those challenges, and the key, but one of the key ones is creating the trust, which is vital for any business, of course, um, but in the case of platform, if people don't trust you, you really don't have a business because you are standing in between many suppliers and many consumers, and they understand that well. So not surprisingly, they put a lot of effort into developing trust mechanisms, and that includes uh, payment services, insurance, vetting suppliers, setting technical standards, 
and of course ratings by consumers, which I'll say another word about in a minute. Um, they have uh, questions about how do they structure the contracts and the supply chain and um, how much of the risk do they want to put onto their suppliers, but consequently, uh, what might that do to their trust and reputation in the marketplace? There is an argument that actually they operate themselves as very effective regulators. They are already doing things like setting technical standards in the market. They are uh, running a whole ecosystem um, of uh, interlinked marketplaces. And some people also argue that the fact that they have these trust mechanisms, including ratings, means that there is less need for conventional regulation. Uh, when you compare infrequent inspections of hotels by local authorities with the instant, continuous uh, uh, millions of cases of feedback in a rating system, um, which of those is better? So there's an argument that actually platforms can be better regulators than regulators can be. Questions are raised about algorithm design, which we don't understand, and whether there are biases in those. There have been stories about, for example, racial bias on Airbnb, very damaging to the company. Um, we don't know how systematic it is. We don't know what the counterfactual is and what kind of biases exist in conventional markets, but obviously that's something that really concerns the platforms, and they um, want to address those questions. I think there's also an interesting lesson in the fact that these large collective institutions linking millions of people are highly trusted. Because if you compare them to conventional big businesses, their trust ratings are stratospheric compared to banks, oil, agribusiness. And I think there are some interesting um, reflections in the high level of trust that the successful platforms do achieve. Just a word about the ratings. And there's a little uh, subgenre of economic research about um, how bad ratings are actually at reflecting quality and the fact that they are gamed very easily and people don't like leaving negative ratings, they'll only leave positive ones. And I have an example of this from uh, some Airbnb data that I've been looking at on European cities. And the right-hand right panel here uh, ranks the properties by the date of their listing. So the oldest listings are on the left. And it shows um, the uh, number of reviews they get uh, which is the red bar, and obviously there are fewer reviews the newer the property, and the ratings they get. And the, it's pretty clear that there's not much correlation between the rating, which is high, 4.5 out of 5, and the length of time the property's been listed. So ratings are not doing a good job of signalling anything about the properties. What, um, but um, revenue and occupancy rates, which are the, the bar and the line on the left-hand chart, are correlated with the length of the listing. So it looks like consumers are just looking to see who's been around supplying in, in the market for longest, and they put more trust in those, those suppliers. So the information and content of what people say via the ratings mechanism is much less than the information content of what they, what they actually do. Um, uh, these platforms are very dynamic. They're evolving all the time, and the markets are changing a lot. And so researchers have a lot of questions trying to understand these dynamics. And I've divided these up, understanding business model choices. Why are some things platforms and others not? Are conventional businesses all going to go the way of platforms? Some conventional hotel firms, for example, have taken over platform businesses recently. Are they all going to merge? Um, there are questions that I've already touched on about um, uh, uh, whether um, there are particular sectors where they'll be more successful. Um, I think I have some questions about, about financial 
tech, fintech startups and whether they will ultimately be successful peer-to-peer -peer platforms because of the asymmetries of information and moral hazard in those markets. Um, there are questions about geographic scope and when it's good to be global and when actually a successful platform can operate in local markets only. Um, there's a set of questions about uh, platform uh, design, and I've already mentioned some of those, so I won't talk about them again. Um, uh, but also, I think, interesting, this one about liquidity, where there is a trade-off between a high liquid market uh, offering quite homogeneous services and a diversified market. So do you want the benefits of variety or do you want the benefits of liquidity? Which is very similar to the debate in urban economics about whether you want a city to be um, a specialised city at scale and, and only do one kind of activity, or whether it's healthier to have lots of different kinds of activities in the same location. It's a very similar kind of debate. And uh, a set of questions about industry structure, and in particular, over time, what are uh, the incentives to innovate? Um, uh, what are the incentives on platforms to uh, uh, treat their suppliers uh, uh, fairly or unfairly? Who's going to do the innovation? Will it be the suppliers? Will it be the platform? Um, will it be new entry into the market? Um, there's a question that I don't actually look at in the paper because it's a huge a set of questions, but platforms sit on other infrastructures. They sit on the uh, net physical network infrastructure of fixed line and mobile communications and the internet. And they also sit on the international payments infrastructure, whether that's PayPal or a more conventional payments infrastructure. Um, so lots of interesting questions there that may be of more interest to uh, economic researchers and people setting up their own platforms, uh, business school kinds of questions. Um, but what about the policy questions? So one that interests me, because I have a background in news, having been a journalist myself, being married to a journalist and having had involvement with the BBC, is about this problem of free, which I think is a real question about the news market and other markets um, that are advertising supported. And there's evidence that free is a really compelling thing to human psychology. One experiment asked people to queue for 90 minutes to get $10, and it had no takers. But if you ask people to queue for 90 minutes to get a free lunch, you'll get a line around the block. People love something free. Um, and, of course, the models like Google that use, quotes, free services, uh, ad-funded, um, are very compelling. And it would be really hard to explain to consumers why you would want that service to stop being free. But there are some disbenefits, of course. There are direct disbenefits of looking at adverts that you don't want to see. Um, there are benefits that the companies gain, not only from advertising revenue, but also from uh, collection and, and sale of data and uh, the use of that data in advertising. That ad market is extremely complicated, vulnerable to fraud in an arms race, and I think there are some parallels there to high-frequency trading markets. And, um, and then two big policy questions. Does free act as an entry barrier? Could any other search company uh, uh, knock Google off its perch? Um, but is it sustainable? Because who's investing in that content? Which is a particular issue with news, um, which is, of course, a public good. It's always been cross-subsidised by things that do make money. Maybe it is the case now that the thing that does the cross-subsidy is voluntary labour, and individuals will provide news that will uh, fuel the future of these kinds of sectors. But there are market failure categories of news, 
um, including investigations, uh, political reporting perhaps, uh, children's programs, arts and religious programs, a growing number of uh, categories where the market will not provide, but people think are important. And even though they acknowledge that they themselves like to watch the football and the entertainment, they, uh, they believe that those categories should be provided. And um, the ad-funded internet is largely Google and Facebook. This is uh, from Benedict Evans and is, uh, only goes to last year. Facebook has grown enormously its advertising revenues since then. Between them, Google and Facebook have the lion's share of internet advertising revenues. Um, but they're not investing it in content. And so I think there are some questions there. Uh, thinking about the psychology of free takes me on to some behavioural questions. Uh, could it change? Is it just that the habit has been set that we expect content to be provided free? And can people start to break that down? Um, we always assume in economics that preferences are fixed, but I think there's evidence from these markets, both from the marketing, um, but in other ways, that uh, they're not, and that access to um, uh, services or uh, content online actually changes people's preferences. And um, for competition policy, why do customers seem reluctant to switch in digital markets where it ought to be very easy? In the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority has recently published two very big reports, one into the energy market and one into the banking market, and in both cases concluded that the problem was that we need better consumers because consumers won't switch, and it's quite easy, actually. Um, so I think given that they don't switch, there are transactions costs that we don't understand. Um, sometimes uh, small changes in transactions costs can bring about big changes in behavior. When we switched from dial-up to uh, broadband internet, a lot of economists said that won't make much difference to people's behavior because it's a small reduction in transactions costs and we already know what that does. In fact, of course, it transformed people's behavior and I don't think we understand very well um, when a small change in costs will make a big change in outcomes. Um, there are a lot of other competition questions, and I feel I've hardly got time to go through them in any detail. Um, so the fact that pricing is asymmetric immediately makes it difficult to uh, do the traditional market definition approach to competition policy. The... Um, the uh, the way the platforms tend to build out by going into neighbouring markets also, I think, is a challenge to market definition. There have been a number of cases where um, acquisitions by big internet companies have, have, have gone through because it looks like it's a different market and there's no question of, of dominance in that new market. But the um, aggregation of scale and the uh, indirect network effects that come about through creating those extra links, I think, do raise questions about how competition authorities ought to think about market definition. Um, we don't really know about the extent of price discrimination. Economists who've tried to find it haven't succeeded, but that seems a little bit odd, both because there are new tools emerging to allow consumers to fight back price comparison um, uh, tools, but also because we know from airlines and, and, and trains and so on that there are lots of markets in which there is very successful price discrimination so why wouldn't it happen here where it's even easier? And perhaps we just don't have the data, or perhaps um, there are reasons in the structure of the business model that mean it's not worthwhile. So I think that's something to be explored. There are questions about um, barriers to entry in these markets. Have they just become so big that it's too difficult for newcomers to get in? Somebody like Facebook would reply, MySpace used to be dominant in the market, 
um, but it got knocked off the perch by us, that could happen to us too. You could have that kind of uh, uh, supply-side entry, better technologies, better offers um, possible. But in some cases, I think the entry barriers are enormous. Nobody else is ever going to digitise all the books the way Google Books has done. Should we even think about wholesale regulation for access to Google Books so that others can build businesses off the back of what they've done? And I sometimes wonder if, because the traditional tools aren't serving us well at the moment, we're in a phase where we need to go back to, in a sense, the bad old days of competition policy and just think more broadly about the public interest in these markets, uh, given that it's not very easy to do market definition, it's very hard to assess the barriers to entry, and they're changing so quickly. Do we just need a broader kind of assessment? So I think the challenge for economists is urgently to work out theories of harm in platform markets, uh, deliver some practical tools. If a company is going to claim that the consumer benefits it delivers are so large, its monopoly doesn't matter, we need to be able to understand how big those consumer benefits are. Is that true? And also, although this is not a word economists use very often, think about the power relations in these, um, in these kinds of markets. There are some very big players, they're global, and they're delivering public goods. And I think there is a, a, a policy interest in having a conversation about that. Uh, data is a big um, policy issue. Are you twitching? Am I running out of time? Uh, you have a few minutes. A few minutes. Three, minutes. OK. Uh, data is a big issue, obviously. Uh, information um, is... A, a problem in a knowledge economy, it's a public good. And we don't have property norms that make it easy to understand how to treat information. The picture is a John Deere tractor. So you might know about the case uh, that John Deere brought to the Copyright Court in the United States, saying that uh, farmers were no longer allowed to fix their own tractors because it owned the property right and the software running the tractors. There's been a very modest reversal of that, um, but not completely. And I think the data is valuable, um, but we don't know how much there is, we don't know how valuable exactly, and we don't have uh, either economic or legal concepts of what the property norms and ownership issues are. A um, lot of other issues here that I will skip over because um, I'm running out of time. <laughs> uh, and I've mentioned some of them already. Um, the innovation I've mentioned already. Um, Critical mass, I think, is a key issue for Europe, and how do you finance things to get critical mass? We have a big song and dance in the UK, which is quite a big economy at the moment, uh, when we raise $150 million, for, £150 million for a startup, um, but of course that pales into insignificance by comparison to the funding for the American startups, and that's how they get to scale. They lose money for years to crack that chicken and egg problem and get to critical mass, and we haven't been able to do that. And then finally, just lots of other issues too, and I can just leave this slide up while we uh, have the panel discussion. Um, uh, for example, do we want to think about um, different modes of regulating data? Do we want to invest the ownership in individuals? Uh, do we need some kind of data ethics structure? Um, when we're trying to tackle this, we often make things worse for consumers. The cookie law is a great example of something that's meant to protect consumers, but who doesn't get irritated by having to click on it every time you go to the website that you visit every day? Um, are uh, Facebook and Twitter really publishers, and should they be treated legally as publishers in a way they haven't been so far? They'd uh, obviously challenge that. What are the issues about uh, terms and conditions, which are completely non-transparent, and, and so on? Um, 
Uh, finally, I think, the macroeconomic issues, which I've barely touched on. Um, a lot of my own work looks at the effects of the digital economy on the collection of data. And there are lots of issues that we don't collect data from these digital entities. Uh, there are not the same legal frameworks for collecting data as there are from traditional entities. Web scrape data gets you part way, but, not, but there are issues with that as well. Uh, we don't really understand how the business models are changing uh, GDP figures. Um, we don't really understand what's happening to productivity, and I think there is a puzzle here about why there's such technological change and business change that isn't showing up in productivity figures. Is it simply that we're not doing enough of it, or is there more to it than that? Um, it's a very exciting time to be an economist, which is not so good for other people normally. Um, but a lot of the research that I've touched on here and in the paper, it's focused in quite narrow areas. The thing, economists are starting with the things that have always interested them and building out from that. But I think um, the policy questions are actually extremely large and profound, and they touch on politics and geopolitics and social norms and arrangements as well as economics. And I think policymakers certainly need to listen to the economists, but economists really not need to start to deliver some practical results that will help policymakers develop the tools they need for this digital economy. Thanks Thank so you. much, Diane. Uh, I think um, you covered uh, very well uh, the area. It was a very comprehensive and insightful presentation. Uh, of course, we cannot address all, all those topics today. We need more many days uh, to discuss them. Uh, but um, allow me one question before we move uh, to Bruno in the panel. Um, so um, you mentioned uh, that the dynamic nature of these markets, and uh, you provided uh, the different categories, the topology of, the, of uh, these online platforms. So when we are talking about uh, regulation, when we are talking about theories of harms, when we are talking about new antitrust uh, tools, how can we define this tool? It should be business model specific. It should be uh, define a category of platforms that operate uh, in the same industry or they have uh, similarities, or it should be something more general. What will be the most successful approach? I think it has to be something more general. And you have to start from thinking about the, um, the consumer welfare, the producer surplus, and the distribution of those benefits. And that's bound to be case by case and general. So I just don't think we're in a position to have any systematic approaches to it at the moment. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I suggest uh, to move on to the panel and then we will have time for discussion. So, Bruno, uh, please go forward. You change the slides? Sure. Thank you, Georgios. Thank you, Bruegel. Thank you, Diane, for a most interesting uh, paper, which has given a lot of food for thought. So I'll try and uh, follow up on that. Uh, I start with a, um, a disclaimer. Most people start uh, saying something they do not speak on their, in, and they speak only in their personal capacity. In fact, I'd, I'd rather be uh, in the interest of transparency explaining uh, what my company does at Copenhagen Economics. We work, uh, I don't think the clicker is. If you point there, probably it will work better. You go ahead. We work <laughs> on a variety of policy areas, including digital and um, Thank you. Okay. Anything cool. special I should do? No, just point there, and I think it's easier if you stand on your head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it does. And um, we have uh, provided advice and worked for um, digital platforms. So it is important for me to uh, to disclose that um, our company is an independent uh, uh, 
private consultancy, so we give advice to not just digital platforms, they are a minority of our customers. We have a broad set of customers, including public sector organizations, including uh, vendors, uh, previous uh, unit, uh, several DGs of, of the Commission and, and, and Parliament. So it, it, it gives you an idea of the, the range of work that we do and why we like to look at the issue of digital platforms because it is so pervasive in the economy. We think this is a highly interesting topic, so thank you for the opportunity to, to, um, to speak here. And uh, one of the points you, you mentioned in your paper, Diane, was that a lot of how uh, the platform issue has been framed is, oh, this is about disruption. We're disrupting incumbent. I think what we experience today is that actually platform, digital platforms research is disrupting the incumbent research. So our existing understanding of, of several broad topics. And um, this is a challenge in itself. I think that the, the, the reason there will be um, uh, pushback also from a, a research side. Uh, as, as consultants, we're interested in bridging a gap between research and policy, so it's for us very important to see how this debate evolves and, and then we can try and apply it and, and find out some, some practical answers that help shine a light here. So thank you for your contribution. First of all, we see that digital platforms are, as you've acknowledged, very diverse. And um, this is a challenge because how can one research program fit all when there are so many diverse diverse um, specificities in, in the nature of these digital platforms. Also, the extant regulation applicable to these digital platforms in many different sectors is quite diverse. So that, that is a further headache about understanding how the market works because already regulation is at play. So these are not markets that operate in a vacuum, regulatory vacuum. So it's, 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 it's a research challenge as far as I can see. And a second point is that this type of research makes us evaluate which branch of the economic uh, theory and analysis are we looking at? Microeconomics, incentives and conduct of individual entities, macroeconomics, the performance of the whole economy, mesoeconomics as it has been defined, industrial organization, the functioning of markets. And um, so you, you state very insightfully that you know, digital platforms have characteristics of firms and of markets. So when we evaluate them, we're actually, in a sense, doing a soul searching of the whole of industrial organization. And, thinking about questions of what is the value of a market, of an ecosystem, of a business model, we are actually asking ourselves what is the value of a market mechanism, almost like what is the value of capitalism. So we are really thinking about the nature of our market economies and what is the value in that. Because these digital platforms are showing us maybe some market functioning that we were taking for granted being renovated around it. So it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's highly relevant. And um, also it's opening up a kind of warmth that probably also predated digital platforms in terms of theory and practice of both the ex-ante regulatory frameworks in several sectors and ex-post competition enforcement on a general level across all sectors of the economy. So any of the uh, troubles that already existed in, in, those, in those areas, market definition uh, and, uh, and uh, a variety of other, of other um, uh, enforcement issues and, and thinking about the, the workings of those mechanisms, well, there's a big light pointed at them, but some of those issues were there with us before. And um, one point I wanted to add, you've identified in your paper a lot of, of different strands of economic literature that contribute to, um, uh, to understanding digital platforms. Um, my recollection of the original contributions on two-sided markets, uh, trying to explain at that time, more than 10 years ago, uh, what two-sided markets meant in terms of economic literature was, uh, as I remember it, maybe uh, somebody please uh, correct me, uh, it's a, uh, I remember in a very simplistic way as the combination of two strands of literature. One is about network economics and effects, and the other one is the multi-product firm. 
And I think the multi-product firm is one that, uh, that um, could complement uh, the, the points you have already in your, in your paper because it is maybe a more boring uh, re research uh, strand and literature that is there with us. And uh, of course, in the context of two-sided market and platforms, it becomes incredibly exciting because there are lots of interaction and, and, and several loops that connect the different sides, which are also different products from the point of view of the, of the platform as a firm or entity. And, um, but in other areas where multi-product firms are under uh, public policy spotlight, for instance, also in, uh, in regulated industries or even in the most extreme theoretical pure monopoly scenarios, findings of, uh, for instance, Ramsey pricing imply that uh, letting the firms set prices based on how they perceive the different, uh, the different elasticities of the different, on the different uh, products in that case, not side of the market but products, is optimal. So that is, is maybe a boring old finding that has been with us for a long while, and I suggest we do not forget it because it helps us understand how the product firms go about their, their business. Of course, it's highly complex and, uh, in, in the case of digital platforms. And um, I think there are also several lines that are being blurred by digital platforms and, 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 uh, and online digital activity in general disrupting boundaries between wholesale and retail and increasing competition, for instance, in established uh, wholesale, uh, uh, established vertical, vertical uh, relations in distribution, for instance, and the boundary between B2B and B2C. Um, there are simplifications uh, and these concepts, and we use them at our own peril. So let's use them as, as long as they add value to our conversations, and of course they do, but we, we also maybe, uh, it's, a, it's an inspiration to move beyond that. And, um, how do we make the most of digital platforms? I think this is the main message that I take from the beginning till the end of your, of, your, of your contribution, especially from the European perspective. I think this is a main theme that we're all interested in. And, 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 and um, well, when we think about innovation and innovation diffusion in general, and specifically when it's innovation that lifts productivity in one sector, for instance, imagine a new innovation in automotive. Well, how will that function? How will that generate maximum benefit? Well, the more benefit, the more that market is functioning well. So the first question would be, for instance, in automotive, if this is one specific sector of application, do we have a well-functioning single market for this sector in, in Europe? Also, what about the input markets, labors, skills, finance, to make the transformation and diffusion of innovation work fine? So this is how we would normally look at it, look at the sector where it has been applied. Of course, there are also broader accommodating economic transformation and safety nets that define who, who we are as economies and societies as our economies progress and innovation diffuses. Now, digital platforms are way more complex because due to, their, to, to, uh, to the broad set of applications, I don't know whether general purpose technology is, is the appropriate term, but clearly there are strong, strong similarities. Um, it, is, it will uh, lift productivity in, in, in multiple sectors. So, the first question when we think about it from an EU point of view would be actually not is the digital single market working. The first question should be is the single market working, thinking about all the sectors in which digital transformation can play a role. And I think a lot of the conversations over the past few, um, few, few years and efforts by the, the, the Commission to, to improve the policy situation with, with the lens of digital single market have ended up shining a light on um, limitations in the extent to which the, the single market functions today. So there's, we cannot look at one without the other. And the starting point is the single market itself. And digital comes on, on, on top of it to sometimes also remind us of uh, where, where the, 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 the barriers are. And I would also add that digital platforms 
are seen often as a EU policy challenge, in my view, because productivity and trade, which are some of the key themes that pervade all of your, of your contribution and how we understand what digital platforms do, productivity and trade are challenging policy matters. And uh, when trying to bridge research to policy, uh, productivity and trade are some of the elements that are in there. And if we cannot communicate and understand well how productivity and trade work, and maybe we do not as societies, then we, we, we will also in the field of digital platforms and many others have, 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 have uh, problems defining a research agenda that is conducive to policy and vice versa, a policy uh, set of, 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 of priorities that is grounded in, in, in research. Because um, it is challenging to, to uh, to, uh, to work with uh, issues that involve gains of specialization and integration, trade-offs with winners and losers. There is a question as to whether policymakers understand the benefit of increasing, like productivity does, the value added of, of, of jobs, vis-a-vis -vis just caring about counting total number of FTEs, counting total number of jobs without thinking about what, what is the value added, what is the productivity. So that's, that's, um, that's an, open, an open question. And um, thinking about this benefit of productivity, one thing that we've done in the past is to look at the, uh, back in 2010, the, the benefits of the digital single market. And we've framed it in terms of productivity. And it is a difficult, difficult um, thing to do. And it is, of course, um, a starting point. But that's, that's what we identified uh, back in the day in 2010. The digital single market had the um, opportunity to boost EU GDP up to 4%. Uh, um, per year by taking a, a close comparison with with, uh, with with the U.S. as a starting point. Um, why is that? Because as we've discussed, critical mass and scale, well, if the single market itself is not working and each country is on its own, then um, the ability to reach the sweet spot where adding additional uh, consumers help generate and propel a business into a sustainable a sustainable uh, spot will be harder to do if it's just the UK on its own or Germany or France, whichever order a, a company might choose to start and enlarge its market. This is an illustrative order, of course, but, but uh, that's, uh, that's, that's the point. Equally, when we've looked more recently at the point on, on, uh, on online intermediaries as a broader class of, of digital platforms, we've, we've looked at contribution of, of the sector, but also that um, these, diverse, uh, these diverse companies help, as we've demonstrated, connect uh, the, um, the uh, different parts of the, of the, of the entity. I will, not, I will not spend too much here because I think you've characterized it in, in a very detailed way in your, in, your, in your point. I would just show that the two main actors that we see can benefit a lot from digital platforms are on the one end SMEs because they can um, rely on digital platforms to act big, to do things that previously only large companies could have done. <coughs> so this is a fundamental nature which seems highly policy relevant from, 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 from the EU debate and given the composition of the EU economy. And there are a variety of ways in which SMEs overcome barriers by using uh, online intermediaries. And consumers uh, as well. So each of us as European um, citizen and consumer has benefits related to the, um, to the, um, to the use of uh, uh, online uh, intermediaries. There are different ways to quantify them. We've done some applied um, uh, quantification and tests, and I think we're only catching a few of the spots. If you look at this broad map or table of different areas and different types of benefits, I think only a few can be quantified at the moment, and we are, we are, we are scratching the surface, and, and, and um, it is difficult to capture the whole uh, set of benefits, but in, in work that we've done in a few examples, we've been able to, to, um, to uh, estimate a few of these specific to Europe, 
and I think the main message is not the numbers themselves, but the fact that we are only identifying a few of the spots, a few type of benefits in a few type of verticals, so to speak, or, 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 or areas where digital platforms play a role. So this would be my message, that uh, we need to, uh, to, uh, to think about how the um, digital platforms help uh, transform different verticals, different sectors, and then find a way to, to, to understand how this, to make the most of this, of this benefit. And we cannot manage what we cannot measure, so I think we have to, uh, we have to keep looking. Thank you, Bruno. And you underline this uh, necessity for data and studies, empirical studies on this field that um, it is necessary to move forward. Since we have this uh, slide on board, um, one uh, clarified question. So you uh, measure that uh, time saved in generalized search uh, can generate 140 billion euros. Um, how can we really measure that? Well, time is money. And uh, each of us as consumers uh, and, uh, and citizens in Europe uh, have an evaluation of time, which in uh, traditional economic studies is proxied by the um, earnings opportunity. So once you multiply that by the, 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 um, uh, the uh, European, uh, European uh, base in terms of either population or, or active uh, employed uh, population, and you also have a measure of the time savings from uh, empirical studies of uh, what search does, then suddenly you have a big amount of uh, time saved due to these technologies for each of us. And if you sum it up together at the average uh, wage in the European economy, you obtain a, a very large uh, monetary annual. benefit. Say that again. Annual? Oh, is it annual? Annual. annual. Per year. Per year. Thank you. Um, I mean, though there are many points for discussion, I suggest to uh, move uh, to complete one round of the panel and then we go to the discussion. In the end, um, so we can continue with Warner and then we go to Nicola. After Nicola, we'll have a, we have a surprise for you. We'll uh, apply uh, a digital platform in practice here, uh, right now, right here, because as uh, Diane suggests, uh, practice, we need practice recommendations and we can arrive to this recommendation only if we know how online platforms work. But uh, the floor is now to Werner. We have his slides on board. Thank you. Um, good, what is it actually? Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, many thanks for organizing this event. Very, very timely, very relevant for us. Diane said it's an exciting time to be an economist. Working in this field, it's even more exciting probably to be a policy maker and an economist at the same time, so I'm double, double excited. So when I, when I read your paper last night, I was all excited, even though it was outside working hours. Um, it's exciting because it's fast moving. It's exciting because of its impact, which is just enormous. I mean, the impact of, of platforms on the economy, on society at large. It is very diverse and complex, as Bruno just said as well. And all, all of these dimensions mean a lot, of course, to policy making. First of all, that, that we need guys like you continuing research on all of this. I mean, that's number one. Second, also, um, it's it means that prudence is necessary for policymakers. You don't see this all over Europe all the time. Sometimes people or governments tend to act a bit fast, uh, but that's a dangerous thing to do in this in this fast-moving space, of course. Um, you also, Diane, you started out by saying um, people would expect us to crack down on platforms. I'm quoting you. Um, if you read the two relevant policy documents that have come out of the Commission in this year. Uh, there was not much of cracking down in there. I think the one was the collaborative economy guidance document, which I think, but I mean, I tend to be corrected by people in the room, other panelists, was a very balanced approach. 
uh, and a pro-collaborative uh, economy approach. And similarly, the online platforms communication, which I focus on just in a few slides because I don't want to steal too much time by things that you can hear many times elsewhere, whereas these guys here uh, come, come here more seldom. Uh, also, the online platforms communication, in my opinion, is a very pro-online online platforms communication. Let me see what I can beat Bruno on this. Push harder. That's why we need consultants, you know. Oh, turning it around sometimes helps as well. See, uh, this guy are really worth their money. Um, <laughs> platforms, uh, as also Diana suggests in her paper, uh, have been there for a long time. They've just changed in, in, in form and, and nature. Um, yeah, it works, really. Um, we really start out by, by saying how much uh, platforms actually contribute in positive terms. And these are just, just some examples given in how they do that. So the first one, uh, capacity to facilitate and extract value from, from direct interactions or transactions between users. So obviously there's huge value that is produced, welfare effects that are produced for, for all sides of the market. Uh, they collect, use and process large amounts of data all of this obviously has implications. I'll come back to that on the next slide. Um, they build networks and interdependencies between customer groups, create and, and shape new markets. All of this is not a definition of platforms because just like yourselves, uh, we acknowledge that it's very hard to come with this one-liner that defines online platform, you know, once and for all. So we rather identified the usual criteria if you want, yeah, the multi-sided nature, the network effects the use of technology, uh, the data element, and so on. So we also refrained from, from a fully-fledged definition. So these are some of the characteristics of those new platforms. Um, and they generate benefits uh, in, in many regards. And here in, in yellow, that's just some of the examples, some of the studies. Uh, if you start from the top, uh, they clearly are a magnet for innovation. Uh, without platforms, without the data they, they generate and use, uh, many subsequent innovations would not, would not be possible, would not have been po possible. Just examples here, virtual reality, self-driving cars, Internet of Things, uh, artificial intelligence, all of this. So a huge uh, driver of innovation. Uh, benefits to business, obviously. One of the examples you just gave for SMEs, yeah, quite obviously for SMEs, it's much easier these days. Uh, to, to, to reach out to other markets, to new customer groups than in the good or bad old days. Uh, another example here from, from a study, uh, how much it reduced re recruitment costs for employers, and, and you could add many, many figures, and also in our staff working document and communication, you will find more figures on that. Uh, the benefits to society overall, uh, benefits to consumers, I also happen to have put up here your 140 billion euro in time savings, probably because I don't have much time anyway. Um, so there are lots of benefits. That's our starting point. Yeah. So potentially, um, and, and in reality, platforms generate lots of, of, of benefits and advantages. And Diane explained very well that uh, all the information is symmetry, all the search costs, all the transaction costs that it, they manage to reduce. Um, that's just enormous as a potential. Now, this is also why um, our approach to this starts with this sort of, we embrace the platform revolution, um, and we try through various policies uh, to provide a 
framework conditions that are conducive to growth and further development of, of those business models, whether it's through our DSM strategy, uh, financing uh, instruments, research money, all sorts of, of, of funds that contribute to that, uh, trying to provide a good environment for startups start and so on and so forth. But then, of course, as you would expect, um, we also identify uh, the inevitable downsides or risks that are associated with that. Uh, and we were listing some of the policy challenges that you have also identified in your presentation, Diana. Um, but still, um, <clears throat> we try to stay as, as proportionate as, as, pos as we could possibly be, so not come with this uh, crackdown on platforms uh, approach or agenda but rather say, well, there are issues, these issues need to be looked at carefully, and if evidence suggests that there are problems, targeted problems, they should also be dealt with in a targeted way and not sort of with this across the board, one size fits all solution, which also Bruno said doesn't make much sense. Uh, Co-regulation, voluntary efforts play a major role in this, of course, uh, and we also have to exist to evaluate much better what is the frameworks that exist and to what extent they may be out of date, overtaken by events, all the legal frameworks have been developed in, in other times. Uh, and, and it's very hard, of course, to squeeze all these new um, realities into those existing outdated frameworks. And you mentioned as one example, even competition policy, um, which is one of the longest and most proven instruments um, comes to its comes to its limits when all of a sudden we have to address platform related issues. <clears throat> now those the areas that we have identified as as issues to be looked at in more detail are level playing field, responsible behavior by platforms, trust, transparency, fairness, and open markets. So for instance, um, I don't think we can really read that. Um, that comparable services uh, or activities should be subject to similar rules, not necessarily the same rules. Um, certainly not the same rules. Very often rules that were developed uh, in another world cannot just be used and applied to, 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 to platform business models now. Um, but still, unfair competition as such is an issue to be looked at. Responsible behavior um, the the, the e-commerce directive and it's the, the, the exemption of liability contained therein. Uh, we said we're not touching on, on the regime as such, but there are some targeted measures uh, aimed to address specific, specific problems in this space, but we didn't want to touch the overall framework. Um, transparency, fairness, user trust, I come to a few examples on the next slide. And open markets as well, especially when it comes to data and the data-driven world. And here I'm not so much talking about private or personal data, but rather data um, used then for, 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 for big data, for artificial intelligence, for, for data-driven innovation. Uh, we must make sure that if European platforms are supposed to grow as much as our American friends have managed to do, uh, we also need to provide framework conditions that, that are conducive to such, to such growth. Now some concrete examples, and there are, there are more. Uh, this level playing field debate is being had at the moment in the telecoms review will also be part of the e-privacy directive review uh, to what extent telecom companies and OTT services uh, uh, should be treated either the same way or differently depending on the issue. 
um, on the on the responsibility the liability regime one of the questions that we flagged in the communication was what can we do to um, allow platforms to take uh, voluntary measures without taking them out of the liability uh, exemption by doing so to be technical for those who are not great uh, experts in, in, in the e-commerce directive on trust, transparency, and fairness, here we are working in the B2B space at the moment with workshop studies and so on, because consultations leading up to this con communication have uh, shown lots of complaints by small business users of the platforms. It's about the relations between the business users and the platform. Uh, and there's a variety of issues that have been flagged. Uh, and we are at the moment trying to, to understand these issues much better. So that's one of the priorities at the moment. Um, on open markets, uh, as I said, it's about data. There's work ongoing in, in DG Connect on free flow of data, um, disproportionate requirements by national laws, for instance, with regard to data, where data's have, data have to be stored, um, but also other data-related issues on data ownership, portability, use, liability, and so on and so forth. So big topics, uh, difficult questions. Um, and last but not least on the innovation agenda. Um, let me just see what that means. Uh, doesn't mean much, but I'm sure we have wonderful ideas on that as well. Um, <laughs> with that, probably I leave it at that. And we still have one, one speaker with, with research to add. So uh, let's go to Nicola directly. And you can use them. Okay, and I have another device, so uh, does this work? No. no. I can speak loud. Yes. All right. So, um, okay, very good. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, I was sure there was a trick. Um, now, um, listening to Diane uh, really makes me think, you know, how much I love my job, uh, you know, flagging all those issues for uh, research and policy, and... Uh, uh, this digital platform that we've been talking about in, in my world, so I'm uh, an antitrust guy. Uh, so I'm from the antitrust field, I'm a lawyer. And um, when we talk about them in my field, uh, very often uh, you hear about them uh, as being described as uh, monopolists. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm also a sort of very avid reader of uh, the tech press, you know, things like Wired, TechCrunch, you know, blogs and things like that. And um, reading all the things, uh, at some point, you know, in the past 18 months, I was sort of puzzled because the world that those people talk about is very different from the world that the antitrust people that I meet every day uh, discuss. Um, they sort of, you know, describe a world where those firms are sort of um, waging war at each other, uh, involved in some sort of, you know, fierce, ruthless, oligopolistic competition. And so I was sort of very intrigued by that uh, um, you know, distinct depiction of the world, and I started to do a little research on that. So in, in the analysis field, we sort of, you know, very easily sort of um, make a list of the markets on which those companies are active, and then we, we sort of, you know, try to flag out a market on which, or some markets in which we find market power through market definition, and, you know, then the inquiry focuses on that, you know, string of markets where you have market power, and then it's all sort of, you know, uh, ready for, you know, remedies and discussing conduct, and then you end up with, with fines. So that's the sort of process we have. 
and it's very, it's very like tunnel uh, vision effects. Um, when these people talk about uh, this company, they talk about oligopolists, and so I thought, you know, can we actually you know, move beyond the press and the headlines and try to see if other people from other fields who sort of follow um, scientific, um, soph more sophisticated uh, paths that, than journalists, with all due respect for your husband, um, um, do they also cast a distinct view on competition? And that's where I come to this idea of the oligopoly hypothesis, which is a sort of, you know, we the French, I'm French by origin, we often uh, create new words and uh, uh, this is a contraction between monopoly and oligopoly. So um, I, I, I sort of, you know, went through a bunch of things. So I, I have a paper, it's coming out today, actually. Uh, it might be in the, in, in the email that you will send later. Um, so I went through financial da data providers research, you know, things like Yahoo Finance, MSN Money, and a bunch of websites of this kind, a bunch of studies and analyst reports which do company profiles. And when they describe the industry, they would tell you, you know, well, this company, the gay fans, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft are all competitors to each other. Uh, the second thing I did, I went to, so the slides are just for, for background. I went to, that works well. Um, I went to, to the um, uh, filings that those companies themselves uh, report to the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States. Now, the, the incentive structure of those companies when they report to the SEC are very different from the one they have when they talk to the antitrust authorities, whereas they try to downplay their market power. Um, here you have you know, companies which try to show that they are profitable, they are resistant, and so on and so forth. And when they talk about their environment, they, they say very interesting things. So I went through all those reports, uh, it's all in the paper, and uh, it's interesting because it tends to show that clearly those companies have this sort of you know, feel that they all can disappear tomorrow, uh, including very old companies. So, you know, some people say it's lies, Peter Thiel wrote a book about that, you know. Um, but, you know, still, I mean, there is some credence to give to, to this talk, you know, if you uh, sort of embrace all that, um, all that literature. Now, of course, the next question is, the next question is, how do you, so how do you describe and explain this process of competition that those companies might be waging at each other? What is that type of competition? And that's a sort of, you know, a big, big difficulty. Um, so again, I, I did a lot of readings, um, including in business strategy, you know, books, management science, and that sort of stuff. And I think there are sort of five, you know, big features which come out of, of all those uh, papers, of all those reports. Um, those firms are Conglomerate companies, um, someone mentioned multi-product uh, things, you know, we, we could call them conglomerates. Uh, they have this sense of disruptism all the time, they talk a lot about disruption, not any disruption, technological disruption, they don't talk about disruption that on the money market, for instance. Um, they have a sheer sense of, you know, R&D is the, the big thing, um, and I'm, I'll just say one more word about that a little later. Um, they have also a process of innovation which is not sort of pipeline outcome-oriented research. Besides that pipeline research, they also have a lot of blue sky uh, type of research where they sort of, you know, tinker and, you know, play to find, you know, things that are crazy, actually. Um, and in the hope that maybe they will sort of come up with the, the next transformative technology. And the last thing, of course, is they are very active on the money markets. Uh, they are engaging a lot in a lot of M&A you know, uh, activity. At the same time, they're also funding a lot of small companies, uh, larger companies, corporate venture capitalism, venture capitalism, and so on. Now, the one thing I want to show you is uh, that, uh, which is that we, in the antitrust world, we 
tend to downplay a lot the sort of R&D expenses of these companies, but when you compare them with other industries which are the champion of R&D, uh, you know, the numbers are, are quite impressive. Uh, they're in sort of same league as the large pharmaceutical companies, a little higher than the defense companies. The big question being, what is, what is it that there's behind this R&D? And very often what you read in these reports is uh, it's all about resources, human resources. They are not necessarily building factories and, you know, brick and mortar stuff. They do. But uh, a lot of that R&D money is about uh, hiring Skilled people, not only engineers, but people that can manage large companies, people that can scale, people that can construct. Um, anyway, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. There are some sort of puzzling features. Now, um, what is it we do with all those features? Um, again, I explained that in the paper. I think um, the, big, the big sort of you know, thing that we miss is these companies are actually competing against the non-consumption. They're competing to um, find new market footholds in a whole array of areas. Um, you know, AI, um, finding you just, you know, crazy new applications. And, and th that's driven by their sense of disruption, which they feel very, very, very fiercely. They're also competing to um, create low-end market foothold. They're trying to, you know, cut the heels of um, companies which are, have been there for some time. Think about uh, the efforts of Facebook and Google in relation to internet connectivity. They are trying to fly objects in the air to deliver connectivity to poor regions in the world. Think about uh, attacks on the cable players in, in the United States and so on and so forth. They are competing against a non-consumption. Of course, in the antitrust world, uh, we don't really pay attention to the non-consumption. What we look into is a relevant market. Uh, this is driven by decades of actually, you know, um, uh, theoretical uh, formal uh, research, you think about Alfred Marshall, partial equilibrium analysis and that sort of stuff is basically what drove us into MarkDev, hypothetical monopolist test, barriers to entry, incumbency. This is a sort of toolbox that we use and I believe that this toolbox is uh, a little outdated, um, I must say, and we need to maybe you know, think about trying to embrace this sort of three-dimensional holistic uh, competition in the process. How do we do that? And I will sort of close with that. Uh, I'm trying to stick to, to the time. Um, so I uh, think uh, there's two things that we need to think about. The first one is maybe we, before we crack uh, down on those companies, on those uh, uh, platforms, on those monopolists, uh, we believe they are monopolists, maybe we need to sort of apply a sort of screen to understand how much consumption against the non-consumption there is. And only if there is not enough consumption against the non-consumption, then we should look into the core relevant markets in which dominant positions can be established. Now, how do you have this maligop how do you operate this oligopoly screen? I'm sorry that the slides do not turn out well. Uh, I don't know what happened. Uh, but anyway, um, I think there are three variables which can tell you whether a firm is a oligopolist or whether it's a monopolist. A oligopolist being a company exposed to a lot of holistic competition outside the core markets. Um, three things. Um, first, you try to look if the, the firm has a sort of serendipitous uh, approach to innovation and to its business, uh, whether it's a conglomerate, so whether it's sort of embracing a conglomerate model, whether it's experimental in the, in the way it does research. You need to understand, second thing, whether the firm is a patient capitalist, whether the earnings it's making, the profits it's making are dividended to shareholders or whether they are returned into the loop of uh, R&D investments, and you know this, you can you know find metrics on that. Um, the third thing you try to understand is whether this firm is a, a platform leader, so whether it's sort of um, sort of anchor to a number of other firms, which actually you know are very happy to rotate and and 
and gravitate around this company and the benefit for, from all these environments. So I've tried to, I didn't want to antagonize people, so I just um, um, wanted to make sure that there's no Apple person in the room, but uh, um, you know, if you look at those metrics, I mean, it's just sort of very qualitative, you know, way to, to, to put things in, in perspective, but Apple looks more like a sort of, you know, old school uh, company in my perspective in that, under that framework and companies like maybe Google and Ma Amazon would be, you know, more in sort of high uh, value of malicopolism. Now, once you've done that, and I'll finish with this. So once you've done that, if you know the firm's a monopolist, you don't just push competition enforcement. If the firm is not a monopolist, it's a monopolist in the core markets, then you know you can look into what's happening there. Now, what I propose in the paper is to say, well, antitrust needs to look into two things. It needs to look, it needs to look at what I call barriers to entrepreneurship. Um, it needs to actually get an interest, focus its resources on what creates disruption and whether those inputs that create disruption are locked by barriers, strategic or structural. Um, two things can you know, come into play here, barriers to resources. There's a big debate in the US on how firms use non-compete clauses to restrict the engineers they have or you know, the, the key people they have to move from one company to the other. There's books you know, from the 1980s in the United States which say the Silicon Valley really throve because you know, people were moving from one shop to the other all the time. And they were exiting those large companies, creating startups, coming back to large companies, whatever, you know, that sort of constant cycle. So maybe we want to look into that. Second thing we, want, we may want to look into in terms of barriers to entrepreneurship is what I call barriers to capital. Uh, the funding, you know, market is very important. Uh, we, that was mentioned earlier in the discussion. Are there clauses? Are there restrictive agreements? Are there practices in the funding market, in the money market, which prevent the sources of disruption to play fully. Um, this is an interesting area, uh, and uh, there's very little written about that. Uh, thanks for your attention. Thank you very much, Nicola, for uh, this oligopoly theory and uh, this uh, the trust perspective on the topic. Uh, now it's time uh, for the surprise. And the surprise is that we have Simon Wilkie with us. Uh, we'll connect to US, uh, and he will talk with us from there. Uh, he's a chief economic uh, policy strategist uh, at Microsoft um, and uh, very active in Microsoft research and uh, also a professor in the University of Southern California of economics and law background. Um, can you hear us? Simon? Simon? No. <laughs> we are trying to get him on board. Um, and uh, he will give us also his perspective. Uh, he's expert on technology side of economics, and uh, it is a great pleasure to have him on board. We think. We think. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Simon. Can you hear us? We cannot hear you. We cannot hear you, Simon. Is the Microsoft? Is the microphone okay? Uh, we can see you, but we cannot hear you at all. Can you hear us? As it was mentioned, there are always some failures. Let's see. 
Simon cannot hear you. I don't know if my colleagues can help with that. Yeah. Uh, we wait for uh, the problem with the volume to be restored, and we continue discussing, Simon. So um, I think um, we have clear and many uh, topics um, uh, said. I don't know if you want to respond to some of the panelists. You can hear us at least. Yeah. You woke up at 5.30 in the morning yeah. for this. Yeah. And put it on. Yeah. Which is possible. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's really a pity. I'm really sorry for that. And um, it's really, yeah, he woke uh, up especially for this event. I don't know. We tested the program yesterday and it was working. Never mind. Um, so let's open the floor to the questions, and we'll have general comments uh, with um, all the speakers uh, and reply to each other. So is there any question? My name is James Waterworth. I run a trade association of many internet platforms. Thank you for really excellent and wide-ranging presentations. Um, this is the, the, there's been lots of debate in a way over the last couple of years preceding the excellent groundwork that you've done today. So I kind of wish we'd invented time travel and we could have done this two years ago. Um, I wanted to go back to one of the things that you talked about at the beginning, Diane, when you were talking about some of the things which are not present. So you talked about the the dynamic and positive things which can come. And, and from your personal background and professional background, you talked about news media and some of the things about investment and content, which is a big European debate now uh, on which um, uh, I, I guess you will have opinions about how this can actually be resolved because often challenges are identified with either the wrong solution or no solution. And I wonder what your feeling is. It obviously links to questions about the provision of public service media and its future in a digital age. I just wondered what your view would be. Is the solution to that actually anything to do with platforms or actually nothing to do with platforms whatsoever? And how do we go about it? Um, it's, it's very clear that platforms are an important new medium, or online in general, an important new medium through which people are increasingly going to access their news. But, but news is, is clearly a, a public good, and we know that public goods don't get provided in the right quantity without some form of public intervention. And the form that takes varies from country to country because it's highly cultural and the political circumstances differ. Um, and, and, and there are sort of multiple challenges that are not just the ones to do with the technology and, and the market structure. I had a long association with the BBC, so you won't be surprised to, say, to hear me say I think we have a, a pretty good structure and an institutional framework for providing impartial news and other countries will find other ways. But I am clear that whatever the path, there's going to be some government role in doing that because the market incentives simply aren't there to create public good types of news in the quantities in which um, societies need them. Thank you. Uh, other question? Lady over there. Oh, right, Hilda, please. 
Yes, Renier de Vugler, senior fellow here in Bruegel. So the, this molygopoly type of structure that uh, you typically find in these markets, so is that the optimal structure for creating the incentives for innovation, but not just only the incentives for the molygopolis themselves, but also for other newcomers or new um, entrepreneurs to keep on investing into the next platforms as well? Um, is that something that uh, competition policy can actually address, or should we have more exempt regulatory mechanisms to make sure that the markets remain sufficiently contestable in that respect? Uh, let's collect two, three yeah. questions, and then we'll answer all together. So if there is any other question, please feel very welcome. So I don't see any movement. So we can go to the answer, and then we can discuss with us unless someone has a question to make. Okay, um, so it's a very good question. Um, my, my viewpoint is, you know, comes more from what is sort of default uh, position of the NIH authorities in those markets. We should say, well, what we see now is not the right thing. It's those markets have a structure which is not the right one. You know, think about all those cases, the Google cases, the Facebook cases, the Microsoft cases, and so on and so We cannot hear you, Simon. OK, good. To hear your voice. Can you hear us, Simon? Okay. My curry is a technician. Hello. Hello. Hello.
for this uh, very interesting market design approach uh, on the topic. Um, unfortunately, we almost ran out of uh, time. Uh, so I would suggest to have a quick round of final statements of, from all the speakers, and we close the event, including you, Simon. I will leave you for the end after hearing the other speakers. Uh, stay with us for a moment. Zach. Yes. Just one point which I uh, think is important. Uh, one of the issues we are facing, I think, with platforms is that the, the profit of a platform is not necessarily linked to the amount of innovation it's doing. So if you think of a different you know, monopolistic big platforms which we have, some of them are very, very innovative in terms of what they're doing, and some of them are just, you know, take advantage of network effects. And the profits are not that dependent on the level of innovation and how good a job they're doing. And we have, I think, a problem of thinking through uh, you know, it's, it's fine to, to give large profits to very innovative institutions. Uh, there's a problem to, uh, of rent, and you know, if network effects and stability of uh, monopoly power uh, is really as important as, as we think, uh, there's going to be very lots of resentment down the line about the rents that some of those platforms are having. And I think kind of finding the right policy uh, is going to be very difficult because this is also going to kind of impact the political environment uh, in which all those decisions are made. So I think that's one of the things which we have to think about. Thank you very much, Zach. Nicola? Um, sure. Uh, just two things, maybe to um, um, say um, uh, you know, something uh, more geared to the paper of, of Diane. Uh, number one, um, about you know, Google not providing content, maybe free writing on others' content. I'm just wondering what the world would look like if Google was on top of what it's doing, uh, uh, producing content, uh, and that would, yeah, that would create a sort of you know big ethical question on vertical integration, uh, most likely. Se second thing, number two, is um, the public interest argument that you raised. Um, a, a number of these companies are discharging public goods or public services in the old way welfare states were doing that, and uh, there is also that sort of power play between uh, you know, private players and, and public institutions to discharge these goods in the future, and that also might uh, pollute or influence or uh, uh, affect the sort of thinking that goes in the mindset of regulators when uh, they uh, try to you know, think about what those companies are doing. Uh, we can uh, leave your uh, final goal for you, so you oh, have a microphone, so please, Bruno. Yeah. I will um, briefly add that um, I think it's very important that um, whenever we look at the um, functioning of digital platforms as a layer, we never disconnect them from the variety of sectors to which their innovation, their value added um, ultimately flows into, because this is how we, uh, we will check whether we are maximizing the benefit to the economy, as, uh, as uh, Diane's uh, initial and final point in, in her paper. Um, where I think this should be our North Star. So we should not make digital platforms become a navel-gazing exercise where we can talk a lot about antitrust and, and uh, does market definition work and uh, what type of competition, which are interesting questions. But because this is a, a type of uh, economic operators and technologies that are so important for the functioning of our whole economies and societies, let's not just uh, look at those important topics but think about the economy-wide uh, impact as well. Otherwise, it's a missed opportunity for us to, to, uh, to be impactful. Um, probably two final observations from my side. The first 
is linked to size and market power because for platforms to produce, be successful and to produce welfare effects and or benefits to someone, they have to be big. Network effects, if they're big, they have power. So one of the key questions always is how can we make sure that on the one hand, there can still be market entry into such a market dominated by a very successful platform in whatever field that is. And the second, uh, that the, the benefits are spread fairly across those that are in this ecosystem. I refer to the B2B relations, but also B2C. So that, that's the one obvious policy challenge, I think. The second is a bit following on what, what Simon said. 23% of, of, of business leaders don't think they will survive. Only 23% think they will survive the digital transformation process. I got it wrong. But anyway, there's a lot of disruption. You know, disruption is something that sounds very exciting to some and very threatening to others. Uh, and it's just this medium-term perspective of a lot of disruption going on, which affects us not only as business and as consumers and citizens, but also as employees. Uh, that's something for policymakers, obviously, that has to stay very much at the, you know, in, at the center of attention. Um, what's happening to all these people that are not working for the disruptors at this point in time, how can we help them adapt? How can we help companies adapt to the new environment? Not stopping change you know, from happening, which you can't do anyway, but how to, to accompany those that have to go through a transformation process. That's real people, that's real incomes, that's real, real lives attached. So we should not be just overexcited about all these gadgets that we're getting, but how can we, how can we manage this from a societal point, uh, more, more globally speaking. Final, final words. Um, there have been such a lot of interesting comments, I can't possibly sum up in any way, so I won't try. I'll make two comments. One is that I didn't mean to imply that Google itself should be investing in the content, but that there is a question about where in that whole ecosystem, from the underlying networks all the way to the smallest suppliers, innovation and investment are going to happen, which depends on where the profits sit. And I don't think we understand that very well. A final thought is that, of course, we're talking about private platforms capturing public benefit through these network effects. There's no reason why we shouldn't talk also about public platforms. And I think another bit of the um, agenda which I didn't talk about was to ask, are there markets or public services where the public sector itself should be thinking about using these kinds of models to capture and deliver public benefit to the public? And I think that's a very interesting question. Thanks so much. Um, please uh, join me thanking uh, warmly the speakers for being uh, today with us. Also Simon, that uh, in the end we managed to hear him. And uh, unfortunately, we had this technical problem. I sincerely apologize for that. Uh, let's thank the, the speaker. Simon, are you there? <laughs>